Father God, we thank you for time now to look at what uh, you say in your word. Thank you that you speak to us. Help us to listen. Uh, help us to hear what you have to say for us today. Um, Lord, uh, change our hearts, we pray, as we look at what you say in your word. Amen. The uh, southernmost tip of India, there it is, uh, marks its southernmost port with a large statue set a few hundred metres out to sea, as you can see. Uh, it's a popular tourist attraction, uh, and it was extremely popular on Boxing Day 2004. Uh, a year later, uh, I was fortunate enough to travel to that town, where it can be found, Kanya Kamari. Uh, with a small group of school students, we went to support rebuilding efforts following the devastating tsunami that hit that day. Around South Asia, you may remember, it killed over 200,000 people. And in this place here, thousands died in truly tragic circumstances. I remember standing on the beach, just out looking towards that statue, and I heard this story from a survivor. Uh, I don't know how much you know about tsunamis, but when a tsunami hits, an, an ominous warning sign is water which rapidly recedes below low tide, hundreds of metres out to sea. In this case, you'll notice there, it led to a massive land bridge uh, between the sea and the statue. Hundreds of tourists were there. They didn't understand what was going on. And so they ran out towards the statue. There was a few. One of the survivors we spoke to understood what was about to happen. Whilst they themselves were frantically running to higher ground, they shouted and screamed to those who were running out towards the statue. But they shouted in vain. They shouted them to turn around, to run as far as possible. But those running towards the statue ignored the warning. And the inevitable happened. In this first section of Romans, which Sai begun last week, this section sort of 1 uh, verse 18 to 320, Paul is given the strongest warning possible. And we need to listen. Paul is shouting as loudly as he can. He's reminding the believers in Rome that as he concludes in 3 verse 20, no one is righteous not even one, but all will face judgment. And so heed the warning and run. Amazingly, not away like from a tsunami, but towards Christ. I wonder, why do you think Paul spends so long? It's about 20% of the whole book of Romans he spends on this point, reminding people again and again of their need to repent, their need to turn and follow Jesus because of a judgment that is to come. Well, so I mentioned it last week in Romans 1.18, if you were here, we're told we suppress the truth. We doubt it's really true, don't we? We don't live as if this moment is coming. And the call today is for all of us, whether we currently follow Jesus or you're just looking in, you're so welcome if you are. But the call is the same, it's to live in light of the judgment to come. Because, and I know this is heavy, and you are really welcome, this is your first time here, and I know a few of you it is. But it's true, it's a truth we all know. So it's a time to think about it. We know that all will one day die. And the Bible makes clear we will die and then face judgment. So we're going to look at this passage, and we're going to do three things which Paul encourages us to do. We're going to firstly look down at ourselves. We're going to recognise our state before God. We're going to look forward to the judgment to come. And then we're going to look up 
at God and marvel at his character. Look down, look forward, look up if you're taking notes. Firstly, we're going to look down at ourselves. Now, um, I don't know everyone in this room, but I think most people in this room and most in the world would acknowledge that, uh, that they're not perfect. I think our culture of sort of authenticity today longs to recognise us even more than before. It's a really good thing. But I'm not sure how many people around the world would be willing to admit that deep down they are deeply flawed, unchangeably so. Paul's logic is this in Romans. In chapter one, he wrote a comprehensive description of sinful humanity. As Sai outlined last week, he spoke of a, a world filled with sexual immorality, of total depravity. Now, um, I, I'd like you to do this with me. Uh, this letter, this letter of Romans, as with the majority of all letters, if not all in the Bible, were originally designed to be listened to more than read. So it's the only time I'm going to say in a sermon, but I'd like to encourage you to close your booklets. If you've got them with you, close your booklets. I'd like you to listen with me as I read Paul's words. Imagine you are sitting in this Roman church listening to this letter read out as it would have been. This is what Paul says at the end of chapter one. Just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what, they ought, what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed and depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. I wonder when you listen to that list, what you think. You can open your books if you'd like. Here at the start of chapter two, Paul rightly imagines that many of his audience would be sitting and listening to this letter, listening to that list. And they will have gone, well, that wasn't me. Religious people, good people. I'm sure many of you here would have listened to Paul in chapter one. And like me, probably nodded along with Paul. Yes, Paul. Amen, Paul. I agree with you. That's what it's like. But Paul here is going to make the point that even if we're not as bad as all of that list put together, we will still all face judgment. With that in mind, listen to Paul at the start of chapter two. He says this in verse one. You, therefore, you listening in, you've just listened to that list. You have no excuse. You who have passed judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you're condemning yourself. Because you who pass judgment do the same things. Now, we know that God's judgment against those who do such things is based on truth. So when you, a mere human being, pass judgment on them, and yet do the same things, do you think you'll escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, forbearance and patience, not realising that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? You see, no one truly lives up to their own standards, do they? Because have any of us been as merciful and loving towards others as we know we ought to be? 
looking at the list, have you, have you never gossiped? Always obeyed your parents. I know there's a lot of parents in the room today. You can ask me later whether they did. Never arrogant or boastful. Paul's teaching here lines up with Jesus's. Jesus said, you've heard that it was said to the people long ago. He's talking about the law long ago. You shall not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with a brother or sister will be subject to judgment. It's a comprehensive description. So Paul's challenge here in 2 verse 1 is to you. It's to me. When you see someone acting in anger, murdering as Jesus puts it, what do you do? It's worth me saying it's right to acknowledge wrong, to even speak to someone when they're doing wrong, to warn them against it, to discourage them. Or we'll become like the people in chapter one who approved of those who practice sin. But the word Paul uses is to pass judgment. You have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else. For whatever point you judge another, you're condemning yourself because you who pass judgment do the same things. Paul's putting it this way. It's not just to say something is wrong, but it's to do with an attitude which says, well, it's wrong and you're lost and I'm glad I'm not. It says you believe others are worthy of God's judgment, but, but you're not. It's basically being a hypocrite. Because we, we can, can't we? I know I can be far quicker and harsher in our criticism of others than we are with ourselves. We make so many excuses uh, for what we do, for our sin. I know I do. I, I, was, I was tired. Oh, he provoked me. It's not really that bad a thing. While still being really fast to find fault in others, not understanding anything of what they might be going through. I think in our culture, one way this has played out is with our obsession with celebrity gossip. Prince Harry's book, the fastest selling book in the UK since records began for nonfiction. And what does it tell? It tells the story of family turmoil and conflict. And we lap it up as a culture because ultimately we like to read the gossip. We like to hear the headlines about someone else who has gone off the rails and quietly say to ourselves, phew, well, at least my family's not as messed up as that one. Or phew, I'm better than that person. I'm not as awful as they are. And here Paul says that as we do this, as we pass judgment on others, it says we're condemning ourselves. In other words, Paul is saying that on the final day of judgment, when I stand before God, the one arguing for the prosecution will be me. Verse 2, God's judgment is based on truth. God is completely fair in his judgment and he'll use our own standards as the standards by which we're judged. Someone uh, once likened this to like living with an invisible tape recorder. It's as though uh, unseen, there's an invisible tape recorder hanging around our necks, recording all we say or do or think about others and how they should live. Then on the last day, God will take the tape recorder from us and say, hey, I'm going to be completely fair. I'm going to simply play the tape and judge you on the basis of what your own words say are the standards of human behaviour. And Paul says, then do you think you'll escape God's judgment? I don't think anyone in this room can realistically answer yes. I think I will. And ultimately, 
We all recognise that fair judgment is a good thing, don't we? we? We long for it. We know the world isn't right. And regularly we call for it to be fixed. Uh, Duncan, my, uh, well, today, four-year-old, ha- has recently got very much into Paw Patrol. Uh, avoid it, uh, but it's not too bad on the whole. Uh, it's been grating on me a little bit in places, and, and it came to me when thinking about this passage. If you've not seen Paw Patrol, uh, it's basically a weirdly big but quite empty town, uh, which has got rid of its police force and its fire service and its ambulances and replaced it with a 10-year-old boy and his dogs. Uh, they regularly work to clear up the mess caused by this guy. Anyone know who this guy is? Anyone want to tell me who this guy is? The evil Mayor Humdinger. It's, it's, that's Mayor Humdinger. Now, um, what Mayor Humdinger will do is he'll do something awful, like steal all the town's honey, um, or kidnap a cow from a farm. Uh, and then the poor patrol, the talking dogs, they come in, they swoop in, and they save the day. They fix all the issues. And then do you know what happens? Absolutely nothing happens. There's no punishment. What they do is instead, the, the child policeman rider, he says something stupid. He says the same thing every time. He says, next time you lose your honey, just yelp for help. Or he says, next time you lose your cow, just yelp for help. He didn't lose his cow or his honey. It was stolen from him. That man stole it. And he keeps doing it again and again and again. They've made 10 series of this thing. Lock him up. It'd be a more boring show, but lock him up. Does my head in. Let's take him off the screen. We long, we long for judgment. I long for judgment. We all do. Even if you don't trust in Jesus here, you long for judgment for the world to be made right. Depending on someone's mood, someone can attack God for either not judging enough and at the same time for judging too much. Somebody could ask, God, why did you allow that evil to happen? And then the next breath say, how can God say that sleeping with my boyfriend is wrong? These contradict each other, don't they? One demands intervention from God, the judge, and the other demands the exact opposite. People often don't have an objection to the idea of God's judgment. They just differ about whether or not they should be on the end of it. The fact that we think like this, thinking we're the exception to the rule, shows that we need a judge who is impartial, a judge who is totally fair. And Paul says in verse 11, God, the judge, does not show favouritism. We're going to come back to the middle part of the chapter, but jump with me to uh, verses 11 to 16. Because here, uh, Paul goes on to imagine, as we look down at ourselves, that, that both a Jew... Uh, God's chosen people and a Gentile, somebody who wasn't a Jew, are listening in this letter. And they're listening to this letter uh, and he imagines them both saying, well, God, this is a bit unfair, it seems. Paul imagines someone is listening in and saying, hang on, this judgment which is coming, well, it won't apply to me, will it, God? I won't be judged, will I? Maybe that's you today as you've come here and you've heard me talk about judgment. You're going... Doesn't sound fair. Verses 12 and 13. Imagine uh, some Jews who might be thinking, well, this judgment won't come to me because we belong to God's chosen people. We've received the law. We're known as people. We have great privilege. Surely God won't judge us. 
or maybe today uh, an equivalent. Uh, I say I'm a Christian. I'm even a member of a church. I, I grew up in a Christian home. I've tried to be good. Surely that counts in my favour. Verse 11, God does not show favouritism. Judgment is universal. <clears throat> then Paul goes on to imagine the Gentiles who'd be listening in, saying, how can God judge me on the basis of a law I haven't received? Sounds sensible, doesn't it? See, the Jews got given the law, got the Ten Commandments. They, they knew what to do, but I didn't. I don't know God's standards, so it wouldn't be fair to be judged. Or maybe today, well, I've not grown up in a Christian family. I've not been to church. How am I to know? Or I don't have the Bible in my language. God does not show favouritism. And judgment is universal. And what Paul says here, he says in verse 12, that the Jews will be judged based on the law given to them. Verse 12 says, all who sin apart from the law will also perish apart from the law. All who sin under the law will be judged by the law. All those who have received the Bible and know God's standards, he says, have no excuse. Paul says, you're right that some groups seem to have a different advantage when it comes to the amount of truth God has revealed. You're right there. But God's judgment will not be partial to those who had access to more truth. It will be according to the truth that they do have. Law won't be used to judge those who sin with no access to the law of Moses, only those who did. But what about if they had no law? What about the Gentiles? Well, Paul says they do have it. Paul says they have it written on their hearts. Verse 14. Indeed, when Gentiles who do not have the law do by nature things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. Their consciences also bearing witness and their thoughts sometimes accusing them and at other times even defending them. You see, we're told as we see about this inescapable judgment, that God's moral law is written in two places. It's written in the Bible and it's written on our hearts and our consciences. In chapter one, Paul stated that we had no excuse. He said in verse 19, since what may be known about God is plain to them, he's talking about the Gentiles, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. Paul says God's invisible qualities have been made clear. The, 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 the beauty of creation, the, the fact that it is so intricate and detailed, the, the amazing of his mercy to us in so many ways. We've seen that his eternal power and divine nature, Paul says. But now we're told his instructions about how to live are also clear. Whether we've grown up knowing the Bible or not. They're written on our hearts. And the evidence for this, well, in many ways, it's the the good moral behaviour of all kinds of people. An inbuilt sense of right and wrong is found in every society of the world. Despite some differences in how it's outworked, there is remarkable agreement in cultures on this. This explains why... Guilt is a universal feeling. I don't think anyone in this room will have never experienced a feeling of guilt. So as we've looked down, it's been heavy, we've looked down at ourselves. What do we do about this? This guy here, it's a Puritan preacher from when the Puritans were around 1700s, 1800s, Charles Simeon. He said this, he said, there are but two objects I've ever desired for these 40 years to behold. The one 
We've just done this as we look down. Is my own vileness. And the other is the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And I've always thought that they should be viewed together. Friends, this is my prayer for myself and for you. That that we'll behold as we look down our own vileness, our own need of a saviour. Our own sinfulness. And that as Paul says in verse 4, this would lead us to repentance. Read with me. He says this, do not show contempt for the riches of God's kindness, forbearance and patience, not realising that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. Repentance is not just feeling rotten about sin. It's not just feeling you're a failure when you know you do something you shouldn't. It's a it's a 180 degree turn. It's getting specific about our sins with God, asking him to forgive them specifically and then going after them specifically, deliberately. And violently, Paul's going to tell us later, he says, put to death the deeds of the body, Paul will tell us in Romans. If we truly want to live, we will repent and put to death our sin. And as we do that, we hear the promise of God. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And we experience peace. As we look down at ourselves, this is the call to repent. We recognise our sin. We repent. Secondly, and both of these more briefly, we're going to look forward to the judgment to come. Come back with me to verse five, verse five and six. But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they have done. In verses 5 to 10, Paul describes the judgment to come. It's inevitable. And if we grasp this, it will affect everything about how we live. Both in how we live our own lives before a holy God, but also in our mission as we speak to others about the good news of Jesus. These verses outline that when our life is over on this earth, God will either give you eternal life or you'll experience eternal wrath. Either glory, honour and peace, or wrath and anger, trouble and distress. Heaven or hell. And friends, what is a more important question to wrestle with and think about more than happiness or misery for all of eternity? There's an urgency to this, which results from these verses, whether young or old, an urgency to make sure you're right with God. Verse 6 is a quote It's a quote from the Old Testament. It says, God will repay each person according to what they have done. You can imagine, can't you, the the sort of the Jews listening in to the letters it was read. They knew their Bibles. They knew this verse well. Maybe it was a verse they used to quote when they reflected on the judgment they knew was coming to others. They looked out on, on sort of the sin and the evil they saw and they thought, ha, well, one day they'll get what they deserve. God says he will repay them according to what they've done. Yet which of us, as we've seen, would not get a not guilty verdict based on what we've done? Based on the invisible tape recorder. We've seen what we deserve. And then verses 7 to 10 say in different ways the same thing. There'll be two groups. There'll be those who do good will gain eternal life. And those who don't will face eternal wrath and anger. 
And you may have read verse 7. I know I did and get a bit confused if you've read Romans before. Or you've been in church a little bit because it says this. It says, to those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honour and immortality, he will give eternal life. And you may have been confused as you know this seems to go against the whole message and tone of Paul's letter. Because Paul's whole point in these first few chapters is so that we recognise we cannot do good. To recognise that none of us have lived a life good enough because God's standards are perfection. That's why all of us need to be rescued. We've sung about it so many times earlier today. We, we need to receive the gift that is totally undeserved. That of Christ dying for our sins on the cross, taking the punishment we deserve. This is the gospel spoken about in chapter one, the good news, the gift of righteousness, right standing before God, bought by Jesus' blood on the cross. That's the gospel. That's what Paul's going to keep outlining again and again throughout Romans. So verse seven cannot be saying that some will be right with God for eternity because of what they do, can he? So what can it mean? Well, uh, I think there's two possibilities when you read this and, and the commentaries say this and, and having moulded it and prayed. it, I think that both in many senses can be useful for us as we look in there, both true. You see, Paul could be referring to those who are Christians. Those who have put their trust in Jesus and are now justified by faith alone. And we know that Christians, having trusted in Jesus, we're told we then receive the Holy Spirit. We receive the Spirit and we begin to live new transformed lives. Lives which are, are living in light of eternity, which look forward to the life to come. We're made more and more into his likeness, more and more like him. And we're told in many places, we're told here that we will be judged by what we do, by our deeds. And this does include the Christian. We know our deeds won't be perfect, they never will. But as we live as changed people with the spirit in us, we're told there will be fruit. We won't be saved because of what we do, but what we do will prove we have been saved. We see that elsewhere. So, so it could mean this, what Paul's saying in verse 7, or he could be talking about a theoretical group. Maybe he's being a bit sarcastic to make his point. Well, to those who by persistence in doing good seek glory and honour and immortality, he'll give them eternal life. Who are they? He's reminding us again that none of us can now, imagine I said to you, um, and it, this is utterly theoretical, that I'd give a million pounds to anyone who swims across the Atlantic. Um, if you know me, you know I wouldn't have a million pounds, uh, but I'll give it to you if you swim across the Atlantic. If I tried, I can safely say I would get no further than a few metres. Uh, it's really cold. I'm not very good at swimming. Um, maybe some of you, 200 metres, maybe, looking at a few of you. 200 metres, Joe? Maybe a mile? Maybe a mile? Uh, there's some athletes here. Glad sigh, maybe a couple of miles. You train hard. Maybe if you train really hard, had some natural gifting, 20 miles. But we're all going to fall short. None of us are going to row. You may be able to row. None of us can be able to swim the Atlantic. So if we're judged on the basis of what we do, all of us fall short. And we can't complain. God's judgment is fair on the basis of what we've done and how we've lived. And as we've seen, Paul is saying that the judgment to come is inevitable, it's universal, it's for all of us. I'm not 100% sure exactly which of these Paul is saying here. He talks about both of them later in different ways, but both are inherently true because we know there will be a judgment. A judgment that finally settles who enters life and who doesn't. 
We know that we can be declared on that judgment day not guilty. Only based on the work of Christ on the cross. The guilt of true believers will be carried by Jesus. We all fall short. Paul's going to remind us again and again. We all need Jesus. And Paul is going to talk lots about that amazing good news in this book. But that verdict at judgment will be according with what we have done. Our daily lives will give evidence of if we've trusted Christ more than anything else. Trusted Christ more than, more than money, more than fame, more than status, more than power, more than the praise of others. They're all true. So what do we do with this as we close? We've looked down a lot. It's good. We need to do that. Paul calls us to do that in Romans. But now let's look up at God and respond. Did you notice in verse four? It's in some ways beautiful. In other ways, quite scary. Let me read from verse three. So when you, a mere human being, that's all of us, pass judgment on them and yet do the same things, do you think you'll escape God's judgment? Or do you show contempt for the riches of his kindness, his forbearance and patience, not realising that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? It's because of God's kindness alone that we're alive today. God could have been done with the whole of mankind, the whole project years ago and taken us into judgment. And that would have been fair. But in his kindness, he has shown patience. Amazing patience. But his kindness, his patience is not so that we may delay in responding to him. No, we do not know the day or the hour of our death. So there is an urgency to respond. Heed the warning, unlike the tragic pilgrims in South India. So can I say, if you, if you haven't yet put your trust in Jesus, can I call on you to respond today? <coughs> Judgment is coming and it is universal. And as Paul is going to make so clear in Romans, the only way to avoid wrath is to repent and turn towards Christ. To say you're sorry for your sin, sorry for your rebellion and throw yourself onto Christ and trust in his work on the cross which as we're going to remember in the Lord's Supper in a minute, alone pays the penalty for the sin we deserve. You do that today if you don't yet trust in Christ. Chat to someone around you if you came with a friend or come speak with and pray with me at the end. I'd love to talk to you about that. This is the ultimate way the kindness and mercy of God is seen in Christ on the cross. And don't think God's kindness doesn't correlate with his judgment. A child came back from school one day, said to her parents, my teacher doesn't like me. Why does your teacher not like you? Her parents asked. Well, she said, it's because she never marks my work. God cares and he will, if you like, mark our work. This is good news, but also somber news. This is good news. It means he cares cares about right and wrong. He's not indifferent to our lives. He cares about you and he cares about me. So if you're trusting in Christ today, can I call on you to live fully in light of eternity? On Friday prayers, we looked at Psalm 143, where David, in response to the suffering he's going through, cries out to God and he declares, I remember the days of long ago, David says, I meditate on all your works. I consider what your hands have done. I spread out my hands to you and I thirst for you like a parched land. 
I thirst for you like a parched land. Would we, friends, be a people who thirst after God like a land which desperately longs for rain? The author and thinker C.S. Lewis challenges us here to live more fully in light of the eternity to come with a beautiful picture. He says this. If we consider the unblushing promises of rewards and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the gospel, we've seen that the promise of eternal life. It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. What it looked like for us to live in light of eternity. We won't be too easily pleased with the things of this world. Would we hunger after him? Hunger and long for eternity? Would that be our driver as we go about living day by day? Not, not the benefits of eternal life per se, but the person we get to spend eternity with as we look up. We look up at Christ. Friends, we need God's help to live like this, don't we? We need a spirit to continue to do a work in our lives. But this is my prayer. Here it is again, Charles Simeon. It's my prayer as we come to our end of our time in Romans, our first half of Romans 2. There are but two objects I've ever desired for these 40 years to behold. The one is my own vileness. And the other is the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I've always thought that the two should be viewed together. Paul today is telling us the two need to be viewed together. My prayer is that we behold our own vileness today and behold the glory of God in the face of Christ as we prepare for the judgment to come. I'm going to pray, then we're going to sing. Let's just take... 30 seconds on your own in the quiet of your own heart. Reflect on what God has been saying to you today in the passage.